Welcome back to track four of Out on That Line. My name is Jeff. I'm here with my co-host Alex. This week we're going to be going over Creedence Clearwater Revival's album Green River as well as The Killer's new album Imploding the Mirage. Alex, how are you this week? I am doing great, Jeff. And may I say, may the fourth episode be with you and also with you. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited about these albums. Let's get it started. Let's get it popping. Excellent. Well, uh, we had a listener submission. Uh, very much appreciate it. Shout out to Chase, a uh, guy that I know down here in Austin. So appreciate you listening, Chase. Um, glad to get this one because I am very familiar with this Green River album. Having another reason to listen to it was a bonus for me because I do love this album quite a bit. How about you, Ox? Yeah, it was great. You know, I probably know most of the big CCR hits and didn't really dig too much deeper than that. So this was nice to like listen. I don't think I've ever listened to a CCR album all the way through however long we've been friends and it's just never happened yeah well let me uh, let me hit you with a couple little facts here do it all right well first i'll start with an opinion in my opinion they are the american beatles because, wow and i will tell you this they were active for basically like four years i mean the beatles were were active for a very short amount of time as well what 65 to 69 or so yeah i think they uh, kind of over they kind of overlapped a little bit so I'm sure CCR would have existed, but John Fogarty was in the military at, at the time this album came out in 1969. Obviously, Vietnam is going on, civil rights movement happening, you know, lots of, you know, kind of fitting <laughs> that we listen to this album this week here in 2020 when we're going through the things that we're, that we're going through right now. Um, also, Creedence Clearwater Revival, in that short amount of time, eight gold albums in Ooh. about four years. Eight. That's not even counting later when john fogarty was doing his solo stuff in all the number one you know and top 10 hits that he had they had nine top 10 singles in those four years so they were a hot ticket i mean i don't know people can certainly correct me if i'm wrong um i don't know if there was another american band at that point in that time period that was more successful than them um and i think people don't really think about how great CCR was um, because they just were around for such a short amount of time. And when you listen to the music and you don't really pay attention to what John Fogarty is singing about, you know, it can seem very kind of tossed off just your classic kind of bluesy swamp rock that doesn't have a lot to say. Um, but there's certainly some things that he had to say on this album. Oh, for sure. And they're just so interesting too, because like you bring up the whole swamp rock thing. Now I don't want to get too far off American Beatles. Cause I like that. I like that <laughs> yeah. argument. But it's so weird that they are so synonymous with that swamp rock, swamp pop, roots rock kind of sound that you would assume these guys are just those, they're like extras out of the Tiger King. They're just mm -hmm. emaciated with long hair and like missing teeth and like they're Bayou boys. But they're from like Palo Alto, California. Yep. They're all from California. It's fucking... Yep incredible it's just a testament to when you are so influenced by something what justice you can do in doing tribute to it frank zappa for all his weirdness was incredibly influenced by uh edgar varese who was mm -hmm. a classical composer frank zappa saw himself as a classical composer not the guy that wrote like rock solos about farts so yeah it's just interesting when people wear their influences on their sleeve like that you really buy it i mean they they had all the cred in the world and it blew my mind when I found out they were just like Valley Boys. Yeah. I mean, they, and when you listen to it, because you hear a band like Leonard Skinner, 
um, you know, the Almond Brothers, you know, all these bands that you know are kind of like dripping in their, you know, Southern heritage. You know, I think there's a couple different definitions you could use of Southern heritage, <laughs> depending whether you're talking about Leonard Skinner or the Almond Brothers. Um, <laughs> but, and I will say that was way after Leonard Skinner was very popular, they started getting into the, the real right wing kind of stuff. So we'll give them a little credit there. But um, for Creedence Clearwater Revival, again, yeah, they weren't from the area where you hear this music and think that they would be from, you know, I, when I hear this, obviously they had that, you know, big hit born on the Bayou, you know, they had all these songs that are about the Bayou, about the South, you know, very much. And about the civil rights movement as well, which, you know, didn't really take place a whole lot in California. As far as I know, um, I'm sure there were demonstrations and everything, but I'm pretty sure California has been pretty liberal since its inception. Well, um, and there were, there were definitely like, issues of i'm trying to think of when the watts riots were in los angeles which were race riots so like yeah and then rod the rodney king riots you know but i think as far as you know it could be very wrong there you know you could be you could be right but it just didn't see it seemed like to me what they were singing about is things that i had always associated with the south uh, but we can get well, right it, into it, it. yeah no, before we do it just it just goes to show like i don't know it's an important thing to talk about it's insane that we're still having these conversations in 2020 so it's with like, all the examples of why we shouldn't still be having them, you know, right, all, exactly. the, all these things that we can just that we thought of two examples that had nothing to do with each other. And they were both for the same reason, you know, which is why just, to bring it all back around to your point, it was a really interesting time to listen to this album all the way yeah. through. Yeah. So I was hoping to get some insight, you know, so I called my dad who was, you know, <laughs> <laughs> in college at the time this album came out. Hoping against hope because, you know, he's been such a huge musical influence for me. I'm like, oh, he probably remembers when this album came out. Nothing. So all of the research and everything that's been done for this one is is completely me. Great. Uh, no help from Pops, but I'm sure he'll he'll be he'll enjoy listening to this one. Um, so the first song, Green River, I think probably, you know, obviously the title track and weirdly enough, the third most recognizable song from this album, I think, com- next to Bad Moon Rising and, and Lodi. Um, but Green River is just a very much you start out with that swamp rock, like we were saying. This was their second album of three that came out in 1969. So, you know, by this point, their sound had been well established and they were just cranking out hits. So this, I think it shows John Fogarty, very, very prolific songwriter. Um, you know, there's a couple points in this song that kind of grab you. The most of it is I don't think he has too deep a meaning. It's just basically like going on a vacation and you know, the, the kind of things he would do while he was doing that. But a line that grabbed me is um, in the third verse, when he's talking about up at Cody's camp, I spent my days, Lord, that, that verse there. Um, and then he said, Cody Jr. Took me over, said, you're going to find the world is smoldering. And if you get lost, come on home to green river. And what that kind of told me was John Fogarty has been going out on tour, going out to all these big cities. It was a very politically active guy as well. Um, so I, I think he's saying, yeah, the world is, smoldering talking about civil rights movement talking about vietnam war you know and saying you know things are simple here things are safe here so and maybe green river isn't a specific place but maybe a state of mind where it's like Mm -hmm. you need to have a spot where you go where you don't get bothered by those things anymore yeah i could definitely see that i i I also wrote down in my notes too yeah they take us right into the swamp yeah, I just kind of closed my eyes and visualized being on a fucking fan boat, just going up river. Yeah. And it's you, you. I feel like you John Fogarty has one of the most distinctive voices 
yeah. in rock and roll music. I mean, as well as just the style of music that they play. You know, I, I feel like I'm always going to know a CCR song, you know, and I think the only one that I ever that ever got me was um, was that long, tall woman in a in a black dress by the Hollies or something like that. Hmm. But it sounds yeah, like know. it sounds like a CCR song, you know, that, but it's like you could tell they were just straight up trying their best to sound like that. Um, and they did a good job. Um, but it's, there's such a distinctive CCR song. Green river is, I mean, it's just got that lead guitar. Um, he always played, I think it was a Gibson Les Paul, you know, it was very much like became synonymous with swamp rock, that guitar. So it's, it's really, I think this song and like this style of music really is what kicked all that off. Um, and then moving on to commotion, now, this song, this is my favorite one on the album. This is my, this has been one of my favorite CCR songs forever. Um, I think not only because of the, the beat and the riff. I mean, it's just a, it's a tasty tune to start with. But then you oh, look yeah. at the lyrics and you look at kind of what he's saying in it. Um, I don't know if I would classify it specifically as a protest song. I think it's just him being exasperated with kind of the way the world is going right now. Um you know, I don't know if you got the same sense from that, but, you know, from a couple of the verses, a couple of the lines, that's kind of what I took from that. And it just, what do you think? Well, it's another song that exemplifies exactly what you're talking about, which is, and this, like, might be a classist thing to say, I don't know, but if you, like, walk into a mechanic's place to pick up your car, you might hear just, just like John Fogarty going nuts in the background. And if you're not really listening to him, just be like, okay, redneck rock, this this track's, but mm -hmm. you really listen to it deeper. And again, it's part of that whole interesting thing with these California guys taking on the swamp rock tradition and like kind of doing it a big favor because they injected that political conscience into mm -hmm. it. And I think this song is probably the best example of that. Yeah. Um, and they have, you know, just a couple of spots I wanted to point out, like what I was talking about is, um, and when I kind of thought of it being more of exasperation rather than a straight up protest song um, is verse two. when he says, people keep a talking, they don't say a word. And he does these ad libs in every, maybe not ad lib, but these lines as the second line in every verse where it's just kind of emphasizing that first one, um, the first line, I mean, um, and he goes, people keep talking, they don't say a word, jaw, 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 jaw. And it's basically saying like, yeah, people just aren't changing anything. They just keep talking about this stuff. They're not changing anything. Um, talk up in the white house, talk up to your door. So much going on. I just can't hear. So that kind of tells me too. It's like, so he just wants to like have a chance to kind of pull back and think for a second, but there's the civil rights movement going on. There's the Vietnam war, the draft going on. You know, there's obviously, you know, Nixon was in, it was in office at this point. So it's like, there's a lot of bad stuff that was going on in the country. Um, but there was a lot of hope, you know, from folks like John Fogarty that were bringing a voice to this stuff. Um, but I think this was, he did have his protest songs, but I think this was a song where he was just like, I'm tired, man. I'm, yeah. I'm sick of this. Um, and I'm just a little angry that we haven't figured this out yet. Well, yeah. And I think like you, you tell me if this is corny, but I don't know. I think it's just a testament to John Fogarty being good at what he does. But if the song is called Commotion, it's about all of this psychic commotion that's going on in the protagonist's mind. You know, like you said, Vietnam, civil rights, all of these different social and political issues that don't really allow for you a chance to pull back and take stock of things. But also, like, the beat is very famously modeled after a train. So mm -hmm. it gives this kind of drive to the song, this idea that 
we live in this society that in many different ways is just kind of moving ahead at a wicked mm-hmm. clip. And even though things did look very bleak socially in terms of like the civil rights struggle, nom, all of that stuff, we were mar- moving tor- forward towards progress. It was just a, a noisy, combative journey to that point. So like you mm-hmm. said, he's got a lot of hope, but it's just a nightmare journey to get there. It's just a very, it's a really claustrophobic song. Yeah, it's just like basically him saying like, come on, guys, let's figure it out. Let's yeah. get this, yeah, let's get this sorted out and let's move on. Um, you know, like I said, this this is my favorite one on the album. I, I have loved this song forever i don't even know when the first time i heard it but <laughs> i've loved this song forever because it just sounds like it's got that kind of raw angry quality to it but it still grooves you know it's still yep. got you know it's kind of right up my alley well why don't you tell me what you think a little bit about tombstone shadow tombstone shadow um honestly it's not popping into my head right now so i can't do that for you jeff <laughs> well, um, this is the one, and the problem is again with this album, like we were talking about with the sequencing with Thundercat, and John Fogarty took his craft very, very seriously. There's a lot of stories about him being kind of an asshole about things. Like they you were not say. allowed to do, they were not allowed to do drugs. They were not allowed to like drink if they were in the band. I mean, he was he was a regimented man. Um, so this was the one. Uh, just give you trip your memory maybe a little bit um, starts out tombstone shadow stretching across my path. Every time I get some good news, Oh, there's a shadow on my back. Um, so it's, it's kind of a slow, slower song a little bit. Um, what it kind of told to me was like, peace of mind is not free. Like it's always going to cost you something, especially in the time that they're um, in that time period. You know, there's no, just if you, if you're aware of, the struggle of black people and, and people of color at that time, the, the struggle of the poor getting sent off to war all the time while the rich people were able to come up with bone spurs. You know, there's mm-hmm. a prominent example of that, you know, when they were able to come up with things like that to get out of it. But then, you know, folks like John Fogarty at the point he got called into service, like couldn't do anything about it. He didn't have the means to do it. Um, so in this time, it's like you can't really separate yourself from that. You know, if you were super rich, you probably could, but people that are in everyday life and in the everyday struggle, peace of mind, you're not going to be able to just get that. So there's, you know, he talks about seeing a gypsy way down in San Berdu, um, $5 on the table and to keep me away from my tomb. So he's basically like, you tell me what I have to do to survive this time, but he's got to pay for it. You know, there's no, there's nothing free about uh, being able to get through this time for him, whether it's a literal $5 or his mental well-being, which is kind of what more that I, what I took it as is like, it's taking a little piece of you to get peace of mind. Um, and then at the end and he says, you know, just $5 more and, you know, take a long vacation. He says, Oh, well, if you spend a little more then you can really separate yourself from it. So it's like, it's like, how much are you willing to give up to get away from this stuff? But it's stuff that he doesn't want to necessarily stop thinking about it. it's just i think it it goes along with commotion where it's like all that noise is going on there's no there's just no escape from it it's just everything is swirling around him all the time and he can't find a space to breathe well and that's something i don't i don't want to spoil the back half of the episode but that's <laughs> something we'll definitely touch on is um the artist and their responsibility to stay in touch with these kinds of issues 
And the more famous you become and the older you get, the more your perspective changes and the harder that becomes. Mm-hmm. So that's something I look forward to digging into. Unfortunately, I am the brick wall on this show, on this song because <laughs> I took no notes on it. Well, I will say, you know, I, I do. Obviously, it's part of this album, so I've listened to it a zillion times. This is probably one that I would have left off. Yeah, maybe not left off. But if I had if you had to have me rank everything on here, this one's ranking just above the instrumentals. Um, just because it has words in it, you know, but it's mm. not, I think compared to the other songs in the album, not quite as good or strong. And certainly I don't think has parts to it that are going to grab you in. I think just cause I've listened to it. So, so many times that I've just know the lyrics, you know, got I was going to say you had a whole analysis there and yeah, what I mean, happened to me is that I, <laughs> it didn't really like hit with me and I had nothing to say about it. And I just forgot to even write it down to remember which <laughs> yeah. one it was. Um, one that I did want to give real special attention to here is wrote a song for everyone. Um, so I've, I've loved this song for a long time. So this is, I think definitely more along the lines of the who will stop the rain, you know, Lodi coming up later in this album. Um, definitely more of the slowed down acoustic John Fogarty where his lyrics and his ability to write really shine because he sings so frantically and so loud and in other songs that it's hard to really understand what he's saying. Um, but songs like this really give you an idea that he was a master at writing these songs. Um, and he was extremely prolific at getting you to understand what the feeling was like. Um, you know, for this one specifically, I wrote it, it was a protest song. Um, it was, you know, MLK was killed in 1968 as well. I mean, there was RFK was killed as well. I mean, there's a lot of things that were going on that he couldn't do anything about other than, you know, his voice was his song. You know, I think you hear that cliche a zillion times from a zillion people, but it's especially true with him. And I think it really did become a bit of an anthem. Um, you know, and it tells where, where you see Richmond about to blow up communication failed. So that tells me that there's probably a riot. I tried to look up whether there was a riot in Richmond, Virginia at that time. Um, just sounds like that was a real hotbed for racial strife in general. I don't know if there was a big riot that started there, um, but it sounds like Richmond that he mentioned specifically was a hotbed for this kind of stuff. And he had a habit of writing about places that he had never been or lived. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if he really spent time in Richmond. I'm really not sure. I, I tried to look that stuff up, but you know, an album came out in 1969. There wasn't a whole lot of, a lot of background information on on where he was when he wrote it and stuff like that yeah um yeah i really like this one too and i also got i think for me a different a completely different interpretation of it too not saying oh no it's it's the right one jeff you missed <laughs> it i'm just saying it it the interpretation of it does lend itself to this concept of like failure like mm-hmm. utterly failing to do something to to it's hard to articulate, but I, I definitely got this like insane sense of regret and sorrow and remorse and guilt to it, which was interesting. And to me, I kind of applied it to like a romantic situation, like almost like the failure of a marriage, the way that he speaks about it. Mm-hmm. It's this like very tender way of being frustrated with your complete inability to be effective. So yeah. I don't know. That's what I got out of it anyway. Yeah. Um, and I think it, it really was too, because I think it was, you know, I kind of, what I was able to find out about is he was really worried about being able to still be at home and still be present with his family and everything. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so the chorus, when he says, wrote a song for everyone, wrote a song for truth, wrote a song for everyone, and I couldn't even talk to you. Um, I think what that is, he's like, I'm expending myself with this music and this, the political climate right now, you know, but I, and I don't have anything left to give it home. And I think that was part of what you're saying with, with the failure that he's feeling, I think was the fact that he's like, I, my hands are tied. I'm doing as much as I can, but I, I'm spread too thin. I feel like there's not as um, enough that I can do. Right. I can be a family man, a political activist and a musician, but I can only be two at any one time. Yeah. Yeah. Situation. Yeah. That's a great way to boil it down. Yeah. I think that's exactly kind of the sense that I, that I get from this one. Um, really like it. Um, if you, I would absolutely recommend this song because right now, I mean, there's verse three, um, you know, saw this people standing thousand years in chains. Somebody said it's different now. Look, it's just the same. I mean, this album came out in 1969, you know, so literally look, it's just the same. Yeah. 50 years ago. Um, and again, and that lyric could be written today and it would be just, just the same. Um, so it's, it's really, I don't know how many folks, you know, really give a lot of credit to John Fogarty for the music he was writing at this time. But I think he does deserve quite a bit of credit um, to go along with, you know, I had tons of folks writing protest music, obviously at this point, but I think, um, you know, I just, I don't hear John Fogarty get mentioned as much in those conversations. I really think he should, because I think he kind of spoke to a, a perspective from, for people that you know, it wasn't all the sixties, like folk music and stuff like that. He was, he was angry. He was like, I'm, I'm speaking for the people that are angry, which goes into bad moon rising. Oh um, baby. Now this one, I would be very surprised if you're listening to this podcast, and you're not aware of what that song is. Um, but this one is probably the biggest protest song on the album, um, became a massive song, especially for the soldiers in Vietnam. Um, just because the chorus, you know, I'd see a bad moon rising. I see trouble on the way. Um, it's just a sense of foreboding, you know, and it, and it's just his, I guess his way of saying like, Oh, I see a bad moon rising. I see bad things coming. I see a storm coming, that kind of thing. It's apocalyptic. It's completely apocalyptic imagery set against this jaunty little, like maybe I'll go out and check the mail kind of sound like strolling along. It's the same thing as like born in the USA. If you're not mm-hmm. like really listening to the lyrics, then you probably think this is a much different song than it actually is. Yep. Or Fortunate Son, another John Fogarty mm-hmm. written classic. You know, it's the it's the he's very good at kind of hiding <laughs> like meanings in there. Um, I think one allegedly this song was written on the day Nixon was elected. So that huh. that's something that I don't know is if that's totally true, but it definitely was written right around the time he was. And I think in response to him being elected, because I think that's when people realize like, shit, this stuff is not going to get any better with him in charge, you know? Um, which is how they did people elected him knowing he was a crook, knowing that he was a, a shady guy. And well, what do you, what do you know? 50 years who, later, we, who would do that? Who would <laughs> yeah, do such who would a thing? Do that? Yeah. I mean, people learn their lesson, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think one, one thing he did in this song that I think is really cool that I just didn't really, cause it's been so long since I've really sat down and listened to the lyrics of this song. Cause I've heard it so, so many times that this was nice to be able to sit down and be like, okay, what was he trying to tell us with this one? Um, other than just being a kick-ass song, you know? Um, but towards the end when he says, looks like we're in for nasty weather, one eye is taken for an eye. Um, I think when he says nasty weather, he's not talking about actual rain. I think he's talking about 
civil unrest, this, you know, the, the riots, the Vietnam war, all these things that are going on, you know, and he's seeing it, equating it to the weather coming over the horizon, you know, where he's like, Oh, well, all this bad shit is coming. There's, it's going to rain on us. There's nothing we can do about it. Um, and then the one eye is taken for an eye, I think is the mentality that made us stay in Vietnam. Once it was very clear that it was a bad idea and that we were losing, I mean, right off the bat, I don't think there was any point in that, in that war that we were in good shape. Um, you know, I think it's just him saying, Oh, here's, here's another storm. Here's another cloud of negativity coming to rain down on us here. Um, and I think when you look at this song and maybe try to break it down a little further than just its popularity, um, you can see why it was so popular with, with soldiers who felt like they didn't have a voice and maybe this song was given one. Well, yeah, I mean, fuck, not to be super morose about it, but you're marching through the jungle at night. If you can think of a song like this in its own morbid way, you're like, well, somebody gets it because the people that sent us here sure as shit don't. So even though the chances are something real fucking bad is waiting for me on the other side of this, as Carl Spackler says in Caddyshack, I have to laugh. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's tough. I mean, how many vietnam movies have we seen with that song in it yeah, as well. yeah you know so it's it's clearly has stood the test of time and i think a lot of folks don't even really consider it a protest song anymore it's they about accepting it. your immortality yeah i mean i think they just hear it and it is it's just a classic rock song at this point for people and they don't realize the kind of impact yeah. it had when it did come out um and then moving right along to lodi um another classic song i mean if you go on if you look through Creedence Clearwater Revival's like top hits, I mean, you're going to reckon if you're a music fan, like classic rock and stuff, you're going to recognize 10 of them right off the bat. I mean, on this album alone, <laughs> we have Lodi and Bad Moon Rising, two of their yeah. biggest hits on the same album, one of three that they put out that year. So it's just crazy how prolific they were in those like few years that they were, they were really active. Um, I'm going to do a little callback to Caroline Rose superstar album here. And ask you if you could find the same things I did in, in Lodi that kind of really were the same themes that she was going over in, in Superstar. Superstar. Yeah. So the big one for me with Lodi is just this feeling. This is a weird tangent, but I was talking to my dad about booking acts for the local opera house because they've got a really old, I guess, clientele, audience, whatever you want to call them who appreciate seeing, like, Irish folk bands and things like that. Uh, the average age, attendance age at these things is, you know, antiquity, time immemorial. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I was talking about, like, how do you get people in so that the Barry Opera House is somewhere that you want to go? It's a destination. It's a place a performer goes, and they feel connected to it, and they're like, fuck, okay, this is going to be a good show. Lodi is the complete opposite of that. Where it's just this, fuck, I'm back in Lodi again, playing Mm -hmm. a show. The green room doesn't have a goddamn door on it. There's a toilet in here in the middle of it that roadies are using. It stinks. No meal was provided. I'm definitely going to sleep with someone I shouldn't. And my truck, (laughs) I blew a fucking tire on the way here. But rode 90 miles to get to the gig. And I'm going to get paid $5 for it. Fucking Lodi. I'm back in goddamn Lodi again. So it's just that sense. Maybe he made, uh, you know sweet eyes with the seven-year-old hag bartender and 
that's who he's going to get lucky with. And he drinks for free. Go. So that $5 free and clear. Net profit, baby. That's the best case scenario in Lodi. <laughs> and it doesn't seem like what he's thinking about. So this is another spot. He'd never been to Lodi. He just he said in an interview, he was like, oh, I just had the coolest sounding name. It is a cool sounding name. And yeah. the, the, the image that it evokes, which is, again, just this like bottom of the barrel kind of fucking place uh, to call back to the first episode with Margot Price. This idea of Twinkle Twinkle, where you just have a disastrous gig and the location is terrible and the booker mm-hmm. is shady and everything that can go wrong does. And you just go, that's stardom. Twinkle Twinkle, baby. Lodi yep. sounds like a Twinkle Twinkle situation. Yeah. That, absolutely and that's that's where i got the, like the superstar kind of album as well in my head when i was listening to this it's funny how you know there's i feel like there's only so many themes to go around you can dance around the same this themes talk about it a different way a different perspective um but you're always going to boil things down to these same things you know musicians all that have had success they all look back on those years that they you know had to play in these rundown bars places like the double deuce you know, in, in don't you go throwing stones, Jeff. <laughs> and it's just uh, maybe I should try to do like a roadhouse reference in every episode. Just sneak one in and just see if people can a little Easter egg for the for the folks out there. You know, you know, I'm for it. <laughs> um, yeah. Lodi, I think, again, another song that most people are going to recognize. Maybe you don't know it by the name, just hearing it. But when you hear the song, you'll, you'll know it immediately because it's on every classic rock station you'll ever hear. Um, just again, like we said, just classic why am I here again? I was only supposed to be here one night, but apparently I'm not good enough to play anywhere else, you know? And I think it's just the sense of not only just the town, but it's also a sense of personal defeat. Cause you're like, why can't I be good enough or do something good enough to get the hell out of here? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I should be playing the troubadour and I'm back in fucking Lodi. <laughs> yeah. uh, we can, I, I don't know if you have much to say about cross tie Walker. I don't have much to say about that one. It's just a pretty classic railroad song to me yeah i'm not sure i have a lot to say about cross tie or sinister purpose sinister purpose is good but i don't know that i have much to say about it how about you um sinister purpose i mean it just seems like it's deal with the devil is the is the theme of that one um really not much to parse out (laughs) that one necessarily um just another classic theme um just you know i can help you out but it's going to cost you um, you know, it's say, you know, sinister purpose, knocking at your door, come and take my hand, you know? And I think sinister purpose that those words is like a thing. Like I have a sinister purpose and you're going to mm-hmm. take that sinister purpose's hand, I think is what they're basically saying. So to me, just deal with the devil. Um, and maybe you got him out of Lodi. I don't know. Maybe that was, <laughs> that's what it was for. Hey, you do what you got to do, right? Yeah. Um, still good song. I mean, it's just like crossroads, any of those classic songs about that that yeah. situation and you know i think you can find what you want out of it probably relate it to your own life however you want but good good to listen to for um, me it's a song about the times that i have to go buy new pants that's a sinister <laughs> purpose i can help you out but it's gonna cost you sir your ass is just it's the size of a fucking bus uh are you sure you don't want elastic waste <laughs> what is in there sand <laughs> All right, and then the uh, last song that has actual lyrics on the album uh, is called The Nighttime is the Right Time. And this one is nice little, uh, kind of gave me uh, a little soul vibe on this one. Nice 70s soul vibe. It's a Ray Charles cover, isn't it? Is it really? I, I think so. Well, that would make sense because I didn't. this does not sound like anything else John Fogarty would really write. I never knew that. 
Yeah, no, I I, uh, I heard it and I had the exact same thought. I was like, whoa, this is a big, big time shift. They're, they're killing it. But this this is like sonically not like anything else we've heard on this album. And I looked it up and I'm fairly certain. Yeah, it's a Ray Charles cover. OK, well, that makes sense. And then, you know, they always do the There's that background kind of callback vocal. Yeah. Reminded me a little bit of uh, Dragon Ball Do-Rag from Thundercat. <laughs> yeah. It was that same kind of just the Do-Rag. Why do they? Why do they? Do-Rag. Yeah. Um, it was just, it's just a good song. I mean, definitely about having sex, I guess the lyrics, there's not much there. I mean, it, the, the whole song is bas- basically baby. I said a baby, baby, come on and drive me crazy. Basically that's all the lyrics. I mean, it's just a, a fun song to listen to good album closer. Cause the next two are just, um, instrumental songs, which are also pleasant to listen to, but you know, they don't have, yeah. you know, John Fogarty's not putting his lyrical touch on those. Um, and that makes sense, too, with this one being Ray Charles' cover as well. I can't believe I didn't know that. Um, just because these lyrics are not anything I would have seen John Fogarty writing. You know, it's just his voice lends itself well to it. I think he can sing a lot of different genres if he felt like it. Um, but it was just a fun little soul song. I liked it. I agree. I think it was yeah. a great way to wrap up the uh, vocal portion of the album. Yeah. And I would say um, I think the special edition album has a couple live versions of a few of the songs. So those are good to listen to as well. Um, but as far as the album proper goes, that's all we have for it. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and say stream it for sure. Um, I've been streaming it my whole life, and I think you guys should. If you haven't listened to it all the way through, I think you should. Um, it's definitely got some really strong points in there and a lot of stuff that really applies today um, that really you know was effective protest songs back then. But you know maybe we got to bring those back now. Yeah, I would agree. Don't the matter with you. Stream that goddamn album. <laughs> Carmella. <laughs> Uh, moving on to something more modern, a little bit more modern, maybe only by like 50 years or so. Um, the killer's, the yeah, the killer's new album, Imploding the Mirage. Um, now, I will preface this by saying I am a big killer's stan, like big killer's guy. So I was going into this one pretty much expecting to like it. I was like, as long as it sounds like the killer's, I'm going to be into it. And that's exactly what we got. I mean, there was a couple spots on here that I was like, yeah, not as strong as, you know, the entirety of Hot Fuss, but you know, it's tough to top an album like Hot Fuss. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, it starts right out with My Own Soul's Warning, and this one starts out kind of slow, and you're like, oh, this is a nice little nice little tune, and then, bam, you get that pure killer's bop right off the bat. And it's, you know, it's just, if it doesn't get you to start moving around, you probably, one, don't like the killers that much, because if <laughs> if that kind of music doesn't get you moving around and get you going, then then I think... You know, it's probably not the album for you anyway, but I thought it was great. Yeah, it kind of right off the bat set expectations. It had this really, it kind of kicked into this really big, grandiose sound, which again, you'll hear these two guys referenced a lot on the podcast because of me and Jeff, but Meatloaf and Jim Steinman, where mm-hmm. they would just like have this epic motif to start you off and let you know exactly what you're in for. And I will say for, for this album, a lot of the songs swing for the fences like that. They're huge. They go, they just go balls to the wall every time. And I don't think they always have to do it. They don't always little... have to do it. I think the problem is Brandon flowers, the lead singer. I think he knows that he has a perfect anthem voice. Cause I mean, I don't, I don't know yeah. who's got a better one really. Um, just the way he can sing really low if he needs to, to really give, give that mood. But then he can really, really belt and just the, the timber of his voice. I don't know if that's the right, the way he can like shake his voice almost. I don't know if that makes any 
any sense you probably the shaking is vibrato vibrato yeah whatever he just has such good control of that like when we were talking about chris stapleton last week i think he's got that same kind of vocal control Mm -hmm. and i think he really loves making those big bombastic choruses and i love them too because i think they get away with it you know it might not be one that you i don't think i'll ever hear a killer song be like oh that was abjectly terrible Um, right you know there's some that are not going to land as much as others but you know, I think they do that bombastic, massive song about as good as anybody ever has. Yeah, it's it's, just, it's basically the same thing as saying, like, hey, I really like this pasta. It just could have used a little less salt. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, that's... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I really... I think the chorus on on this song, My Own Soul's Warning, is, is really good as well. Um, you know, it's just... in the way he kind of launches from the end of the chorus, he, he launches with his voice into these like instrumental huge anthemic like riffs you know and it's just it's so cool to hear him do that because you can just almost feel him wanting to like drag you across he's like come on guys come on we're gonna get to this spot where this music is really gonna start cooking i'm gonna get you there come on um it's just the kind of sense that i have when he is singing and and i just know something like that is coming it gets me excited too i don't know i really like the killer so i'm gonna <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna stand for them probably pretty strong here um, moving into the next song, Blowback. Um, one thing I remember reading an inter- uh, review for a Killers album way back in the day. I forget, maybe it was Day and Age or Samstown. I'm not sure um, which one it was, but the reviewer called them a Neon Springsteen fever dream. And you know, Brandon Flowers himself is like a huge Springsteen disciple. Uh, probably another reason why I like them so much. But this song in particular kind of really exemplified exactly that. Um, lyrically you know tells a story and it's very springsteenian kind of story where it's like these two people just regular everyday life and then all of a sudden they're just going to launch themselves into the stratosphere um it's just a really fun song it is it's it's like musically simple like stylistically it's not trying to do too much it's it's really the spotlight for the lyrics which is nice because again as we talk about so many of these choruses in particular are like, you know, shooting off a giant fireball over and over and over again. It's like, it's great. It's big. It's very impressive. But we savor these moments like in blowback so much more because I have written down, there's some Springsteen ass shit going on in this song. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's very evident. He wears those influences on his sleeve. Um, and I just like digging into a song like that where you just think about the story. And I just see this like, this whole like she's got a secret i just see a pregnant teenager taking the bus home after mm-hmm. her shift at denny's and she's just like beat down and she's got to figure out what the fuck she's gonna do and there are tons of people that are gonna tell her exactly what she should do based on their own selfish agenda but all she wants to do is just bust out and god damn it that's exactly what she's gonna do and how much of it is that's her destiny and how much of that is her telling herself that to get through another day her manifest destiny the and i think if you i mean you're probably very familiar with the song the river by the boss but when you're making that when you're when you're coming up with that you know 17 year old girl like pregnant think of the characters from the river in that in that album that song particularly and you see like one brandon flowers is he like you said he will say himself that springsteen is like his biggest influence um and you can really hear it and a lot of points in this album, but this one in particular. Um, and I think he de- he definitely takes that 
storytelling torch like you know the killers gaslight anthem um there's a lot of bands that are you know pretty modern that clearly grew up listening to springsteen and loving him um and i think the killers even wrote and recorded an album in asbury park because that's where bruce started i think they're like that deep into their springsteen fandom and i mean i've visited asbury park specifically because of bruce springsteen so i know exactly that feeling that's why i love listening to killers so much is because i know how much they love what i love and I can hear what I love in their music. And it's that's why I like listening to it so much. And I wasn't that familiar with this album before, you know, obviously we started doing the podcast. I mean, it's only been out since mid-August, I think, anyway. Um, but it's, I, well, I knew going into it, I was like, when he said in an interview, he's like, oh yeah, I think we captured Manchester and Springsteen on this album, or the, the two influences that he said he had for it. Um, and it's just, I knew immediately, I was like, yes, this is going to be fucking great. <laughs> and I'll be honest, I we talked about this album and another album the day they both came out. Because we were like, this is 2020 and the Killers and fucking Bright Eyes have new albums. Mm-hmm. And I remember listening to both of them. And the first time I went through this, I was like, yeah, all right. And then we talked about doing it on the show. And I listened to it more and more. And I was like, it's pretty tight. It's pretty tight. And it was specifically because... I think following that Springsteen influence, but not like it's he wasn't aping Springsteen. Like I'll make the whole album a Bruce Springsteen album. Mm-hmm. It's a killer's album. It's a Brandon Flowers joint. It's just like unafraid of being heavily influenced by the things that he love. He's not trying to reinvent the killers for 2020, mm-hmm. which is pretty sweet. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's where I that's where I fall on that. Yeah, I mean it's it's and I think it's. If you don't have talent, it's going to sound like you're aping somebody like that if you're if you're influenced by them. But if you have the talent, you know, your own voice is going to come through. It's going to maybe be filtered, come through some filters like how much you love Bruce Springsteen or how much you love Bob Dylan or, you know, whoever it is that you really grew up listening to. Um, but when someone's as talented as Brendan Flowers and the rest of the killers, you know, they're going to be able to just take that and make it their own. You know, they don't need to say, oh, we're going to sound exactly like Springsteen. You're like we can sound sort of like Springsteen, but we're still going to have that dance beat and those huge synths, you know, those things that he never did, but it's like, I don't know. They really do a good job of kind of melding those things together. Yeah, for sure. And this is a weird example, but for anyone who's watched the show blue mountain state, there's an episode where the character, this like total meathead jock named fad. He's got this one scene where he delivers this one line in such a specific way with such a specifically recognizable Chris Farley energy that I was sitting there being like, there's no fucking way he didn't do that intentionally because it's not a Chris Farley impersonation. It's just the spirit of what he always did. That quiet start here and get into the yelling type thing that he just nailed so perfectly that it's exactly like what we're talking about here. It's not aping someone in an obvious way. It's, paying tribute to something that brought you a ton of joy and you just can't help but authentically express it and little shit like that is fun to see in pop culture because you love it too you're in on it so it's just like a nice like treat if you're paying fucking attention and not just having this on while you fucking manscape your balls manscape will sponsor this podcast someday mark my words (laughs) i i don't i could not have said that any better than you just did. I mean, that was exactly what I was trying to, what I was trying to get at when I was talking about it, but you just you just put it in the words that I needed to have. So that's that's exactly what I was trying to say. Is it just they don't 
they don't ape it. They don't imitate it. It's just an influence that you can tell is there and they love it, you know, and it, and it's just, it's just very good. Um, and then we move on to, I think my favorite on the album caution. Um, yeah, I think this one is the most classic killers song on here. I mean, you could probably stick this one on hot fuss or, you know, Sam's town or day and age on any one of those earlier albums. Um, and it would, it would not sound out of place. You know, this is the one where it's, it's just so good. And again, chocker block full of Springsteenian imagery, pretty girls, black tops and getting out of your small town. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's really, I just, I don't think they're, I think they're just so influenced by that style of music that that's how he's always going to write, you know, because that's how stories were told to him that he was able to really interpret and understand them. So that's how he's going to tell stories in order for people to interpret and understand them. Um, you know, I think it's it, just the way he describes, you know, it adds adjectives to things. Let me introduce you to the featherweight queen. She's got Hollywood eyes. You know, those, those things are very Springsteen because he really, he could fit a ton of words. And, you know, the, he, the famous story of him writing uh, blinded by the light with a thesaurus in one hand and a bottle of whiskey in the other, um, you know, it's just adds to it you know there's a lot of a lot of people that could do that could try to do this and it's just going to sound cheesy like the 1975 you know when they try to do these things because it doesn't sound authentic it sounds like he's just like oh how can i make this sound more clever you know and it's just like i don't know i feel like brandon flowers isn't trying to make it sound clever he's like i know how cheesy this stuff is and when you own it when you wrap your hands around it and love it like he does it comes through in songs like this that are just huge bombastic choruses that are incredible. I mean, the way this one hits is just so good. Buy the ticket, take the ride. Like you may say it's fucking cheesy, but what it is is it's unafraid to be itself. It's unashamed of what it is. And you have to meet it on that. You have to engage with it on that level. And I think the other cool thing about this is this and uh, I forget what other one I said. I'll get to it when I get to it. But one of the other songs. But Caution is a really great example of something that I read about this album, which is that it's conceptual on a couple levels. So, like, thematically, there are a lot of themes of dealing with uh, Brandon Flowers' wife has pretty bad PTSD. Mm-hmm. And I know there's that song, Rut, from the album before this one. It was, like, very dark, very heavy. And a lot of those themes have carried over into this, but in a very, like, hopeful way. I'll lift mm-hmm. you up. I'll be there for you. So thematically, there's a lot of that going on set musically against the backdrop of um, they said they wanted to use the synthesizers and get creative with them in such a way that they could accurately musically depict geography. So they're already like a, a, a heartland rock group, honestly, at their roots. Like, yeah, it's very synth. It's very neon. It's very mm-hmm. dancey. But. Again, all these themes are very Springsteen and very Heartland Rock. And so that was one of the articles I read. They were talking about we wanted the sound to have a sense of geography to it. And this is a song that does that really, really well. It just kind of drops you in a place like the fucking town from Footloose. Yep. And I think the line that I just have to put this line out there because I think it's great. Again, very cheesy line, but. God damn, if it doesn't hit, um, if I don't get out, out of this town, I just might be the one who finally burns it down. And it's, I mean, just unreal. Like how that's that footloose thing that you're talking about. It's like all these very 
cliche cheesy themes but for some reason brandon flowers can just nail him yeah he's and trust me i fucking felt that one because that that lyric in particular i heard that i was like yeah fuck yeah i'm ready to get the fuck out of there (laughs) well it's cooling down in austin texas so well, there we go. You know, you get those you get those Rona freaks out of there. I'll maybe I'll come back. <laughs> um, I realized we skipped right over Dying Breed, which I feel like we should have given I, some shine to. You didn't like this one? No, I wrote down generic music and lyrics. Yeah, see, this one I wrote down very, like very bombastic, but very much remind me of like the E Street Band and how the and how the music was lyrically. Eh, I mean. I think this one they skewed a little too much towards cheesy. Um, mm-hmm. You know, yeah, I think was, was the like problem it. with this one. He flew a little close to the sun on this one, I think. But um, again, like those Springsteen influences through and through. It's like when I was listening to this, you know, I could just hear Max Weinberg drumming and like Roy Bitten, you know, playing along. You know, it's just like these. I don't know. It just seems like. I don't know if he's ever listened to anything else other than Bruce Springsteen, you know, yeah, right? Like Bruce Springsteen and he had a synthesizer and that's how he's like, okay, how do I make this synthesizer sound like Bruce Springsteen? You know, I think it was, it was it what he had to try to do. I don't, I don't really understand how he makes it sound so much like him, but still so specifically killers. That's what's cool about it. That's yeah. just what's really cool about it. And again, to double back to Zappa, that was the thing he did really well where he was, all of his stuff was compositional. It was this big shit that was interwoven and builded on itself. Um, and someday I'd love to do like an episode where we talk like, or at least like the back half of one where we talk about like an artist and go really in depth. Mm-hmm. Frank Zappa is someone I can, I can drill to the center of the earth and hit lava yeah. with him. See, I think that'd be perfect. Cause I know like nothing. I know more about his sons than I know about Frank Zappa. Yeah. 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 I know. So, I think they fun. were on MTV or something. <laughs> Um, they got the this, weird names, man. Yeah. <laughs> Dweezil and Ahmet, right? And was yeah. it, what's the daughter's name? Well, there's Diva and then there's Moon Unit. Yeah, Moon Unit was the one I was thinking of. But just unreal. I mean, I guess what's in a name, really? Well, he was like, fuck it. I want him to have unique names. Yeah. And then when uh, Dweezil was born, the nurse was like, no, I refuse to print that on a birth certificate. Kiss my ass. Give him a real name. And Zappa was like, fuck it, and named him. Ah, oh, fuck. He named him after a family friend, someone he knew in high school. And when Dweezil was like nine and found out that his name was supposed to be Dweezil, he was so pissed at his parents. He was like, what the fuck? Dweezil's a great name. You let the, you named me Edgar? Kiss my ass. <laughs> He's been sitting there. Yeah, you call me Joe. I got my sister Moon Unit. My brother Ahmet. You know, and I'm what Joe? Like, fuck, come on, guys. man. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think the next song is there's a very interesting kind of story behind this next song uh lightning fields features yeah great song great great song um katie lang as well on vocals um now did you read into the backstory on this one and and what he was kind of going for with it i did not no i had completely different thoughts on this so you you cover that yeah so um and this i mean no free ads but genius.com is where i go to get these lyrics because a lot of times the artists will have you know, a partnership where they or they'll pull the interviews they've done about the albums and stuff. So you can kind of get a background on what the songs are about. Um, and I really, I like that most of the time. Sometimes I don't like it, but on this one, I really enjoyed it. Um, because it's about his parents. Um, his mom passed away of cancer in 2010. Um, so the song is a conversation between his parents. So Katie Lang's part Mm. is his mom 
because she's singing the female part. Now, he didn't tell Katie Lang that that was the deal because he didn't want to like, he was like, that's an emotional weight that you're going to put on somebody. Be like, hey, I wrote this song. You're going to be my mom. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's yeah. <laughs> a really, that's a heavy thing to do. Um, so he didn't tell her. Um, I mean, I'm sure she's a very intelligent person. She probably figured out by reading the lyrics, like what the subject matter was, maybe not the context of it being a conversation between the two of them. But when you look at it like that, it's the bridge where she sings and it. He says, you know, the first two lines, they have it here in italics. So these I'm guessing are the dad, um, late at night, I lie in bed and think about things left unsaid and all the things that I'd do different if I just had the chance. And then the next lines is the mom singing. I assume kind of like from beyond the grave, this is what Brandon flowers would assume his mom would tell his dad. Um, just, you know, don't beat yourself up. You laid good ground. Uh, Look at them all from scratch till sundown. You put the work in and then some. Where is this all coming from? There is no end to love. There is no end to truth. There's no end to me. There's no end to you. Um, so I think it's just him reconciling with himself that his mom is gone and looking at it through the eyes of his dad who lost, you know, Brandon Flowers lost his mom, but his dad lost the love of his life. You know, the, the woman that he married, you know, Brandon Flowers didn't have any choice but for these to be his parents. You know what I mean? His dad mm. chose this woman. You know, they chose each other and she got taken away. And I think this was Brandon Flowers' way of also for him saying to his dad, like, you did what you could. Like, don't be ashamed or don't think you could have caught it earlier. You know, this is one of the realest songs I think I've ever heard from the killers. Now, did you say both of his parents passed away or just his mom? Just his mom, as far as I'm aware. Okay. Yeah. Um. Yeah, no, I had, like, absolutely no idea that it... I mean, like, you get obviously get a sense of the dynamic. It, it becomes clear that it's one person reflecting on regret, one person from beyond the grave or elsewise um, kind of trying to provide that reassurance. But I had no idea that it was that personal, that it was about his family, it was about his parents. Mm -hmm. um, but it was such a, like, my like initial or my, like, reaction every time I listen to it to the song is so strange. Because it starts off, and I was, like, prepared to not like it because it had this, like, adult contemporary kind of sound to it. Mm -hmm. It was, like, it almost sounded like a Bruce Hornsby song. <laughs> oh, God. And I was, like, uh, I don't know about this. I don't know about this. But the lyrics are kind of carrying the weight right now. Mm -hmm. Let's see where this goes. But then it – and I unfortunately, I'm not articulate enough with music theory to, like, really nail it. I, I think it's the actual chorus itself where it kicks in. Uh, it's This is when I wish I could play the fucking song. It's that part where it's that very obvious shift in the music where the adult contemporary song, yep. the, like that adult contemporary vibe kind of drops off. What are the lyrics there? Uh, is it that I just wanted to run my fastest and stand beside you and lightning feel the love? Yeah, it's like when the lyric, when the chorus kicks in, and that mm -hmm. extra sound just builds the fuck in and completely yep. changes. Like, I wish I knew what he was doing. If you would call them like half steps down or like a melodian scale or whatever the fuck. I have no music theory. So yeah, I, who I knows? Maybe you. we can get a music theory expert on here someday and they can tell us all about it. We can ask, 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 ask Axel <laughs> sometime about it. You know, he was always uh, when I used to play music with him, he was always the sounding board of like, oh, what what key do I need to solo in right now? Because <laughs> I have no fucking idea. <laughs> Ask Axel. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, I'm sure in, in uh, Laser Dad, there's probably a bit more uh, resources as far as music theory goes between Kuzman and, and Eric and him. But uh, yeah. yeah, Axel was always my sounding board for that stuff. So I, I can't really tell you either. I know exactly what you're talking about. It's the, I know. Yeah. The Killers, I, I don't know how many fans are really as good at delivering that as they are, where it's just like, just out of nowhere, just this massive arena rock song that you're just like, where the fuck did this just come from? Well, it's kind of like if I can liken it to another song, it's like Lord Greenlight, where that starts off pretty subdued. Mm-hmm. And then just that ta, 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 I hear sound, bam. And then all just that fucking Jack Antonoff shit where it just goes, the place went right off. That's <laughs> what this song does. Yeah. So I guess TLDR for me, Lightning Fields was my personal favorite off this album. I thought it was fucking great. Mm-hmm. I highly recommend that even maybe before you listen to the whole album, you just go in and you see that song. You see what I'm talking about. It's really fucking awesome. Mm-hmm. And Katie Lang, obviously great, great singer. So anytime, yeah, anytime you see that she's involved with something and she's very particular about the, the things that she does. So, you know, I don't, I don't think there was any way this was going to come out to be a bad song. If she had decided to be a part of it because I think she would have been like, nope, don't put my name on that, please. Yeah. <laughs> um, the next song, Fire and Bone. I uh, really don't have much to say on this one. I don't want to call it a dud because I love the killers, but I think I'm going to call it a dud. I wrote mm-hmm. utterly generic. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I really I feel it hurts me a little bit to say that, but, you know, I, I, do, I do feel like this one didn't have a lot to it. Um, the next one, Running Towards the Place, I felt like really kind of picked it back up. Very 80s song. Sounded very like 80s Fleetwood Mac to me. Yeah. Um, especially Interesting Fleetwood Mac bit, by the way. Uh, Lindsey Buckingham played guitar on Caution. Yeah. Yeah. I, I saw that when I was reading through this, and I and I just, I mean, I guess it makes sense because it, it's such so hugely influenced by like 70s and 80s music. Why wouldn't yeah. Fleetwood Mac be somebody who would try to get involved in it, you know? Um, and Lindsey Buckingham, obviously a fucking incredible guitar player. So if you're not familiar with Lindsey Buckingham specifically, certainly get familiar with him because he is real, real good. Yeah. Running towards a place. It's funny that you say that. I would have totally thought that would be the one you deploy your Lindsey Buckingham. But yeah, maybe having maybe they came in. Lindsey Buckingham did the guitar work on caution and then they were inspired to write another song. And maybe that's where the Fleetwood Mac vibes came out of who knows could be but, me yeah. and Lindsay are doing santa con tomorrow <laughs> yeah i think um you know it's just if it I, it goes to show how successful the killers have been if Lindsay buckingham went on a song with them i mean katie lang i think is much more i mean i'm not trying to say Lindsay buckingham is not an artist but katie lang is much more of an artiste you know very mm-hmm. very specific about the things that she does very intentional with her music um Lindsay buckingham is just a part of one of the biggest bands of all time one of the most probably in-demand musicians on the planet right now and he went and did a killer song you know he's probably paid handsomely but he gets paid handsomely for whatever he wants to do and if he chose to go do yeah. a killer song then he's you know that that kind of validates the killers for me is when folks like him just consistently you know give them props and they're like yeah i'll play on your album with you you know i just think that's kind of cool they got a lot of talented people to come play on this one. Wise Blood shows up at the end of this one, mm-hmm. the end of this album. Uh, I'm I I like Wise Blood. And then to your point, it kind of like uh, this whole cred thing. David Byrne and Saint Vincent, 
David Byrne from Talking Heads, mm-hmm. did a whole album together. So that, to me, kind of like, I liked St. Vincent, but it really legitimized her in my eyes because I was like, oh, shit. Well, I think Master. David Byrne fucked up with that one because he's, I think, pretty used to being the most talented person in whatever room he's in. <laughs> he's he like well i'd like to do that album with with saint vincent and then he got on there with her and he's like oh she's she's better than i am now you know i think maybe yeah. at, at his peak he's probably was better than than she is but at this point in time she's certainly more dynamic than he is yeah i mean she's better at doing what she does and he was trying to kind of bring himself into her arena mm-hmm. but you can't step into her dojo she'll yeah. snap your neck she's got a she'll, she'll sweep guitar the leg too. Yeah, she's got a yeah. kick-ass guitar, too. It's like a little tuxedo. It's a cool-ass guitar. <laughs> um, and then next song here, uh, My God is the name of this one. Um, another one that, for me, I don't know how it was for you, but just not a not a total dud. Definitely not as much of a dud as Fire and Bone for me, but just one that I probably wouldn't go back to on the album. No, it's it's got this, like, mirage imagery but like all my notes don't make any sense and i'm like i think that's a testament to like the song left me grasping for straws so yeah. i don't yeah, yeah i really don't have much for that and he is i i think you know and i don't really look into this because it's one like really none of my business because i don't think he's that public about it about his religion but i think he's like mormon or something so i he's think from his, utah isn't he yeah i think his his religion and lived in vegas for ever i mean that's where they're based so it's like weird to me that he would be that devout and live in a place like las vegas but maybe the las vegas i've experienced is not the same as everybody else's experience because i don't think i slept for the three days i was there um (laughs) and i think he probably probably doesn't get involved in any of that um i think caution was about the fact that he's like a goody two-shoes and his wife was you know kind of a badass you know so i think Mm -hmm. that's why you know i i when he starts writing about this, like he starts talking about God and stuff like that. I know it's coming from a very authentic place for him, but it just doesn't land for me. No. Yeah, no. I agree. Didn't yeah. land for me either. Yeah. So I'm not going to poo poo the song or anything. You know, you may find great value in it, but just, just not for me. Um, no. And I mean, really like the criteria when we talk about these is just, uh, did it trip our trigger? It's not like, well, it's an objectively bad song. If we have nothing to say about it, it just means we didn't arrive at any kind of interesting conclusion. I'm sure we'll get to a point on future albums where I've got a lot to say about a song that you just like either didn't enjoy or outright vehemently dislike. So yeah, we'll see when we, we get we there. See. I mean, I feel like we, we generally agree <laughs> on, on most things and kind of can yeah. see the value and stuff. So, you know, I don't know if we'll get to a knockdown drag out, but it'll be fun if we do. Um, yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, next one, when dreams run dry, uh, my immediate thought on this one was Prince. Like just the kind of the the, the beat to it, you know, it, it got a little away from that towards the end of the song. It didn't quite sound so much like I, like it did at the beginning. So it kind of lost that Prince vibe for me. Um, but it's very, especially after the last song where he's talking about how hopeful he is, about talking about his God and, and stuff like that. It's very morbid. <laughs> um, it says, when dreams run dry, I will be where I always was standing at your side, letting go of the reins. We're all going to die. And it's like, and it's hopeful where it's like, I'll be there with you. You know, we're, I'll be there for you. I'll stand behind you, stand beside you, all the, all those nice things. But then it's like, we're all going to die anyway. Yeah. We're all going to the loony bin together, but at least I'm with you. Yeah. It's like, was that necessary? I mean, all that other stuff was really nice. You could have just left that <laughs> last part out, you know? Yeah. No, it's, I, I, again, with this one really focused on the sound, I just got like really wrapped into it. Like, 
they locked into this really great. I got shades of Prince for sure. I got some shades of Blondie. Mm -hmm. And I almost got this like 80s on the cusp of the 90s synth vibe. It wasn't like the most 80s synth piece of music you've ever heard. It kind of had a future forward sound Mm -hmm. to it. Um, And again, it was it did a great job of like fleshing out geographically this. I just got this picture of this like vast emptiness where this is all playing out just this mm-hmm. like vast utah prairie yeah and i think it's you know obviously like vegas kind of comes into play for him a lot just because that's where they are um yeah. but it's you know he, he does go back to like the the desert theme quite a bit you know it's and, and on this one as well and it's just like i don't know it it's a very he keeps going back to that well but it's still it somehow just always works for me i mean how many times did the beach boys go back to like you want to surf i want to surf we want to surf surfer girl surfer boy yeah surfer cat like they went to that well a million times and and found something different to do every time so i really don't mind as long as he keeps putting as much thought into it as he is yeah when when you got it wanted i guess right yeah that's what i always say yeah and then the uh, closing song for the album imploding the mirage um this one (laughs) again just doing his best Springsteen I think you know, mm-hmm. as far as as far as lyrically um it's just I'm not gonna read through all of them but you know he starts out I was a timid Rockwellian boy she was tattooed and ready to deploy um it's talking about him and his wife um and again how she's a badass and he's not um he got he kind of gives a call back to the early part of the album but I threw caution because something about that yin and the yang was pushing my boundaries and beyond my imagining. So he's talking about yin and yang, him and his wife, that she's from, you know, a little bit rougher around the edges than he was. Um, but that they come together and, you know, kind of greater than the sum of their parts, I guess, is kind of the feeling he's trying to give where he's like, we're, we're different. You know, we have our struggles, but we're there for each other. You know, I think big picture, he's like, we're there for each other. We figure out the little things as we go. Yeah. I took it as like a guy with rigid preconceived notions who's kind of learning how to take a leap because of someone. Like I remember mm-hmm. when Dante and Andrea, our friends, got married at their rehearsal dinner. I I had to give a speech. and I remember talking about how like in my mind, love, like you kind of know you're in love when you meet someone who challenges you. And that doesn't mean, you know stereotypically the way think about it like oh they aggravate you they challenge you they call you on your shit but it's just they are such a person who's either so sure of themselves or they're doing such important work or you just can't help but see their example and what they bring into the world it makes you want to be better it makes you want to be worthy of that person and their self-confidence and their love kind of changes you Mm -hmm. i kind of get that sense from this song where it's kind of a really lovely tribute to his wife where it's like we're completely different people. I'm not built to take a fucking giant leap like this. I'm very cautious. I'm very measured. And then seeing you, who's just this force, and you're unsure of everything, but you make it work. And I want that because I want you. So take me with you when you take a fucking flying leap off the cliff. Yeah. And so it's I, just that imploding the mirage. Like the name of the album, that's what they're doing is, you know, you have these preconceived notions about what kind of person she would be. She'd have preconceived notions about what kind of person he is. And they're both like getting rid of that fake view of each other. They're imploding the mirage and they're coming together. And it's just like, I don't know. He's just very good at writing love songs too, I think in general. Um, you know, and I think he's better at writing like just pure 
love songs better than Springsteen was. You know, I think Springsteen was very much could write a love song, but there's always some sort of sadness or heartbreak or something that went along with it. You know, I think Brandon Flowers is just very good at writing what would normally be like a very cheesy kind of love song, but he's just, I think because they own it. They know they're like, oh, these big synth beats, these big, huge arena rock anthems like could be very cheesy and we're just going to own it. This is how I feel. And again, to call back to the first episode, Casey Musgraves writing like the material on that that was about being in love with Rustin Kelly. I saw someone argue. They were like, oh, it's so fucking embarrassing. It was on some I, I meet some real ding dongs on dating sites. Let me tell you. <laughs> so but it was this girl who was talking about like how fucking embarrassing that Casey Musgraves wrote that whole album because it was all about that guy and now they're divorced and that's like her greatest contribution to her music is that album and it will always be about that guy and I'm like that's such a fucked up way of looking at that she felt the way she felt in that moment Mm -hmm. and the album is an expression of how she felt during a literal golden hour in her life she was celebrating what was happening in the moment she wasn't thinking of all the ways it was going to fall apart. She wasn't being inauthentic. She wasn't looking to the future. She wasn't looking behind her. She was living in the present, which was a very happy moment for her. And she expressed that. Now, it didn't work out. Obviously, yeah. things went to shit and their marriage didn't work out. And I'm sure that whenever, I hate to say it, but like when Waxahachie got her heart broken, we got a fucking fire album out of it. I'm sure Casey Musgraves has something in the hopper that's going to reflect how she came out on the other side of this. Because that's what artists do. When they feel something, they write about it. Yep. So this idea that like Casey Musgraves needed to think about her discography, her musical canon, fucking years down the line and not write about how much she loves a guy because she might divorce him someday. Fuck you. Unmatch. Yep. Swipe left. <laughs> Get out of my fucking face. Yeah, strong words. And I like it. And now, truth are, be told, yeah. I talked about the Beach Boys too much and she unmatched me. But that's besides the point. That sounds like her problem. Exactly. Yeah, that's you're fine without that one. I don't. I, I don't care how good looking she might have been. You're fine without. Yeah. You're fine without that one. Yeah, you gotta. Well, you gotta have. It. You gotta have some substance behind the. You know, Mona Lisa's a, Mona Lisa's a great painting, but you can only stare at that for so long. You know. Truly. Yeah. Truly. Truer yeah. words have never been said on a podcast. <laughs> yeah. um, so for me, definitely stream this one. Um, you know, there's, like I said, a couple songs that were a little bit of duds for me, but really weren't even that bad, especially after subjecting our ears to the 1975 last week. Um, you know, I, I don't really have a whole lot bad to say about the album. There's just a couple songs I probably wouldn't go back to. Yeah, and I mean, they're just, I guess, look at them as like, you know, a come down from all the hard work they're putting in on the other songs. Because when they, when they hit, they fucking hit. And it is majority hits. You know, it's just like really two or three that you could kind of gloss over but i would i'd agree stream this one yeah absolutely yeah um so that takes care of our albums for the week um big news for your boy in the past week uh the new bruce springsteen single is out called letter to you um i don't know if you've been able to tell through episode four yet but i am a big bruce springsteen fan um, I have, uh, you know, every one of his albums, I have the live box set of, you know, 75 to 85 on vinyl. I've got some DVDs of concerts, you know, big time Bruce Springsteen fan. Um, for a long time living down here in Texas, I had a Bruce Springsteen poster right above my bed so he could watch over me at night. Um, so, so this song for me, um, but also I guess because I'm such a big Bruce Springsteen fan, I can be completely honest in his later 
more recent work has not been that great. Um, the most recent album, Western Stars, excellent. Um, definitely far different than anything he came out with in the late 70s and 80s. Um, Magic was a great album. That one came out in 2009, I think, 2008 or 2009. Um, Working on a Dream, not my favorite album. Working on a Dream was a piece of shit. Yeah, I not my favorite album. album at all. Um, you know, he did the Seeger sessions where he did a bunch of old folk songs and stuff. That was cool, but not really a Springsteen kind of, you know, hit. Um, the Springsteen on Broadway on Netflix, absolutely excellent. Absolutely watch that if you haven't yet. Um, and then, you know, still, and then also go listen to this song, um, Letter to You. To me, it sounds like classic Bruce and the E Street Band. And that's the other thing with this album. Um, is that it is the full E Street Band. You know, he's, he kind of typically didn't use them in their full power on all the albums because he's very, you know, has a vision in his mind of what he wants, and that's what he wants. Um, doesn't always fit with the E Street Band. They always tour with him for the most part, but not, you know, they didn't always record with him. This album, they're recording with him. Um, so the first single, Letter to You, classic Bruce, I think is a little cheesy. Uh, what do you think, Alex? I wrote down young Bruce would have slayed the dick off this song. I also wrote down Bruce sounds old. Um, I will say I liked the song. It sounds like I led with two incredibly cruel things. <laughs> but we'll call it compliment sandwich. Bruce sounds old. The E Street Band still has it. And if they had played this back in the fucking 80s or something, I'm sure he would have like really lit it up. But to me, the cheese factor came in. It, it did sound a little bit like, you know, grandpa wrote a song for his granddaughter's birthday kind of thing. Like mm-hmm. it, it's just like very, and we talked about how Bruce Springsteen tends to write a lot about characters as opposed to himself. So there's always kind of a distance between him and the listener anyway, mm-hmm. but I really felt it on this one where it was just like, you know, I would liken it to when an artist puts out a Christmas song. Like, you know, oh, you put it out because it's, you know, keeps you it's something that your fans can listen to at the holidays. Mm-hmm. This just like just lyrically and, and vocally felt a little, yeah, cheesy to me. And yeah. I, 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 again, not bad, but like I said, if he had done this as a younger man and you put this on one of those albums, it, it would have slayed. I mean, we'd be sitting yeah. here talking about what a fucking instant classic it was because the the at the E Street band, the sound, the music is fucking tight, 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 tight. Oh, yeah. And I, you know, I've seen them in concert a few times. Um, I will tell you there is nothing like a Bruce Springsteen show. I mean, I'll tell you all you want to hear about Coheed and Cambria live or Against Me live or the Menzingers live. You know, all these really incredible, incredible shows I've gone to. None of them hold a candle to Bruce Springsteen and the E Street band. Um, I saw him for the Magic Tour in 2009. Um, and then I saw him again for the Wrecking Ball tour in like 2012, I think it was. Um, one pre Clarence Clemens passing away, and one post Clarence mm. Clemens passing away. Mm-hmm. Um, really great story. I guess I can tell it on here, but you know, I, one of the most emotional moments I've ever had in my life was due to Bruce Springsteen concert. Um, so Clarence Clemens, for those that aren't aware, is the big man that he's always talking about. Um, he's a saxophone player in the E Street Band. Um, he was an actor of some repute. Um, he was on the wire for a little bit. Um, and it was, he's just a, if you listen to jungle land, you know, there's so many songs where he has these real classic saxophone solos and especially jungle land being the one, you know, 
Um, really incredible song all the way through, but that saxophone solo just has a power to it, a feeling to it, where it's it where the lyrics are great in that song. That saxophone solo conveys just as much emotion somehow. I don't know how it works. Everything is great. But, you know, so I see them on the Magic Tour and I see Clarence play the solo to Jungle Land. I'm like, oh my God, this is fucking incredible. I mean, the whole concert was absolutely incredible. Um, Then we go to the Wrecking Ball Tour and this was the album that came out after Clarence had passed away. And it was, and this was pretty, he had pretty recently passed away. I think it had only been a couple months. Um, so I, I, I go into it thinking, you know, talking to my dad, cause he's also, you know, if there's a bigger Bruce Springsteen fan than me, it's my dad. Um, so we're talking about, we're like, I don't know what they're going to do for these parts. And we'd heard that, you know, they had full horn sections and stuff come in instead of trying to replace just Clarence, um, you know, with just one saxophone, they used a whole horn section. Cause they were like, why are we going to try to do, you know, replace the big man? Let's just replace his part. I think to honor him best, you know, we don't try to replace him with a sax player. So, you know, we were like, okay, well, that should be pretty good. Obviously not going to be as good. So we're getting through the concert. It's incredible. It's at Gillette. I mean, just I'm, I'm bopping through. I've had some beers too. I mean, it was a great, great time. Um, then it gets to jungle land and we're like, okay, well, I guess this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where we're going to see happens. Um, and it gets to the solo and all of a sudden all the lights in the stadium drop down. And all the lights on the stage drop down and just the backdrop, just the the screen behind the stage comes on. And it's just a montage of the boss and the big man throughout the years. Just, you know, on stage, they, you know, they had this kind of interactive quality to how they would go with each other. You know, they always, um, you know, it's just, it's just these two characters they did. It was, it was Bruce and the big man, Scooter and the big man, you know, however you want to, however you want to do it. Um, So he's a big part of Bruce himself you know as as a as an artist you know it's it's he's a part of the mythos of this of the east street band i mean he's an incredible guy so they're going through this video all of these images and and screen clips and stuff and i mean it's just waterworks for me i'm crying my <laughs> i'm crying my, i'm starting to get a little teared up now uh, i'm crying my eyes out because i'm like i'm never going to get to see this guy play saxophone again um and then all of a sudden that video stops big spotlight on one saxophone player in the middle and then all of a sudden he just rips into this solo and i'm like what is going on and then they finally tell us at the end of the song bruce goes i'd like to introduce you to clarence's nephew jake mm. and so jake clemens for that tour and i think the next one as well um replaced his uncle using his uncle's saxophones his uncle was the one that taught him how to play saxophone you know, so to me, like that's the most like almost religious moment I've ever had in my life was <laughs> was Jungle Land on the Wrecking Ball tour, um, and that's just the kind of thing that I will always hold on to with Bruce. So when something like Letter to You comes out and the lyrics aren't as strong as something like Lost in the Flood or Jungle Land or you know these songs where he's just this incredible storyteller, I kind of give him a pass. You know, it's like it still sounds like the E Street Band. It's still Bruce singing, but then I realized I'm like, look, he's not going to have the same authenticity and the same anger and angst at 70 years old with $500 million as he did at 30 years old, you know, when he was still trying to make it, you know, it's, so it's like, it's uh, how much can you expect him to be like he used to be versus, you know, he's living a life now where he's very comfortable. I mean, obviously he's probably got little problems here and there and stuff, but overall, probably doesn't have as much to worry about as he did when he was 30. 
Well, and he's not a gross, you know, capitalist pig. You know what I mean? He's a very socially conscious guy, mm-hmm. a very politically conscious guy who I think is probably trying to minimize the harm that he does to other people, particularly with his money. Mm-hmm. So I think I think he's a, a responsible guy. So it's not just like another out of touch millionaire. But you, I completely agree with this notion that the farther away you get from your initial hunger, the less and less you're going to sound like yourself. For me, I see that reflected a lot with filmmakers, specifically the Maverick filmmakers of the 70s, the mm-hmm. Hollywood brats. Um, your Spielberg, your George Lucas, your Martin Scorsese, your Brian De Palma, your uh, Francis Ford Coppola. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, a lot of them have just gone on and made some real shit. Francis Ford Coppola made The Godfather, The Godfather Part Two, The Conversation, and Apocalypse Now, which are four of the best fucking movies of all time. Mm-hmm. And then I think I'm pretty sure the last movie he made was his was his fucking. Uh, oh no, the 3D Dracula movie was Dario Argento. Francis Ford Coppola. The last one I can remember him making was this thing called Twixt, which was like a ghost story with Val Kilmer. And it was bad CGI and a bad script. And I'm like, what the fuck are you saying here? It's, it's, there's nothing to this. This is literally like a paycheck. This is just like, it is expected of you to show up and make a movie because you're Coppola and that's what you do. Or for me, a better one might be Scorsese. The biggest spread to me is Scorsese from Mean Streets, which was his first mainstream Mm -hmm. release, to The Irishman. I didn't really like The Irishman because – and who am I to tell someone what to do? But the way more interesting story to this was as actors and as a filmmaker, Pacino, Pesci, De Niro, and Scorsese are old mobsters. They're associated with the mob genre. They're old men sensing their end. Their time mm-hmm. is coming to an end, and it's the passing of the guard. And that's something you could have done with a gangster movie to drive that theme home. But instead, they just did this weird de-aging technology, and it was super long, and it was like Goodfellas light. And I look at that, and I go, this was just because someone – because Martin Scorsese knows that if Martin Scorsese makes a movie, it will be prestigious. Whereas when he was making Mean Streets, he was fucking nobody. Mm -hmm. Neither was Robert De Niro. They just were making this low-budget, greasy, angry movie about – you know pissed off young men in New York City in the 70s. A terrible fucking time to be there. A terrible place. Same things are reflected in Taxi Driver. And that edge is just kind of gone the longer that you go to these premieres and, you know, get these swag bags at the opening Mm -hmm. of a new hotel. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think Scorsese did a good job for himself when he started to get away from the gangster genre a little bit. I think his biggest problem with the Irishman I haven't watched it because I just uh, who's got three and a half hours to spend on a movie these days you know what I mean um and I also just heard it wasn't great you know it was not up to like the Shutter Island or the Departed you know kind of level um you know I think he when he looked at things through tried to look at things through a different lens that's when he got to the point where I think you could say he was as good as he ever was back in the day you know and I think like Shutter Island incredible you know, like, but that's not any story that you would really associate with him, you know, and it's just, um, you know, I think they, if, if you find the right way to do it, you know, you might not have that angst or that connection to the, to the stress and the, the anger you had back in the day when you were creating this stuff in the first place, 
But I think if you understand that and don't try to act like you still got it, you might have something different now, you know, and go with that. I think that's where you find success. I think that's where Springsteen finds success with his later work is because I think he fully understands. He's like, I'm never going to write Born in the USA again. You know, I'm never going to. Well, that. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and that that makes all the difference is is reckoning with that instead of trying to be like, well, I had to crank out what everyone expects from me. Oh, flabbity, blabbity, blue. Like, he's he's still putting effort into it. So I don't mean to make it sound like he didn't try with this song at all mm-hmm. or he's full of shit or something. It is very different, and that's to its credit because exactly like you said, I think if he tried to be the young rabble rouser in the tight jeans, it's it's going to just ring completely hollow. So maybe the lyrics are not that solid, solid on this, but the alternative is him with this like overly wordy character based. Some of the stuff, some of the weakest stuff on uh, Western stars went into that mode where it was just too character based. And you're Mm -hmm. like, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about, man. Like this is very clearly invented and it shows. So you should just kind of, Stick to what you know, but mm-hmm. don't do the exact same thing you've done every time before this. Yeah. So to his credit, that's not what's going on here. Yeah, and I think I think he just understands at this point. He's like, obviously, I'm in the twilight of my life, so I'm going to write songs that are you know, a lot more introspective and kind of maybe not trying to speak for other people anymore. You know, Because I think he did that back in the day, like with Born in the USA. He was trying to speak for the Forgotten Soldiers coming back from Vietnam, you know, in the Korean War. Um, and I think, you know, he's like, I don't have that in me anymore. You know, he's like, I very much don't have that anger. Like, why would I fake it? You know, and I think he, I think that's where he is successful where he's always been successful. He's, he's never faked it. Everything he's ever done. You might think it's cheap. You might think the tunnel of love out al- love album is cheesy, but if you look <laughs> at the point in his life where he was, when that was written, you know, he's never cared about what current musical trends are doing that's one thing he has never given a shit about um the only time he ever cared about that probably was when he was the musical trend you know in the in the 70s and 80s when he was the driving force on like okay this is what rock and roll music is now um you know i think he has never worried about it so that you know in 2009 when he releases magic and it sounds like the old 80s e street band you're like but he's releasing this 30 years later and, you know, a lot of people ripped him because they were like, well, why, you know, it just sounds like an old album. And it's like, well, who are you talking about here? You're talking about Bruce Springsteen, you know, and, and, and he has never given a shit about what current trends are. He's like, I'm going to write the music that I enjoy playing, you know, and, and that I think speaks to me. Um, I think it less and less speaks to, you know, the younger generation like us, you know, unless you were really into his older catalog like we are. You know, I think you probably skip a song like this and you don't anticipate his new album. But for me, I'm really looking forward to this because if this is what they've come up with so far as the E Street Band, like he's also pretty classically held back the biggest songs until he can play them on tour. You know, so mm. it's, you know, I don't, I don't think we're going to, we'll hear the album. Obviously, it comes out next month. You know, so we'll hear the album. We'll definitely do a review of the whole album on here. Um, but I don't, you know, he, he typically, you wouldn't hear new songs until you saw them live. And then he, the album would come out with songs that he'd already been playing live. So this is going to be a little bit different for him, I think, um, that we're going to get a chance to hear these songs. And I hopefully it doesn't inform his thoughts on set list and stuff, because that's another thing for his live shows is like, 
they're really long, unbelievable set list. You know, you'll hear deep cuts, you know, that you never thought you would hear. I mean, he's been 40 years, 50 years now he's been coming out with, with music. So it's like, he's got a lot of songs to go through. There's going to be a ton from this album. And I hope he doesn't let the response from this album inform which of the songs he plays. I want the next Bruce tour to be exactly as Bruce wants it to be. Um, and I just worry a little bit with this coming out before they're able to get out and play live that it might influence a little bit of that. It's potent. Yeah, potentially. But I tell you what, you want guaranteed gold. He'd better do a song with Billie Eilish. We'll get Bruce Springsteen and Billie Eilish doing a song together. See, he probably would because he loves playing with younger artists. Like he probably would do that. I mean, She's he... not an artist. <laughs> you don't think so? I hate I hate Billie Eilish. <laughs> really? She okay. Sucks. Well, I think she sucks. Yeah, I mean, I I heard a few of the songs. I thought she was decent, but um, I haven't gone out of my way to listen to it. I think Bad Guy has a nice little beat to it. A little yeah, the boo doo 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 Like it's fine, but the rest of it is just trash. I listened to it many times so here's my little mini review of when we all fall down or whatever the fuck that album's called it's not good where do we go it's not good billy what'd you say where do we go when we go to sleep i think is the name of this trying to sneak that in there for the people oh is it is it yeah where do we go when we go to sleep billy you tell us you're 17 (laughs) yeah that's the other thing too that i was kind of it was like this girl's thinking these are some themes that i'm not sure i should listen to a 17 year old sing yeah, don't be talking yeah. about banging someone's dad. <laughs> yeah, well, I listened to the, the Skimbo Lounge, newest Skimbo Lounge episode today. Well, I got about halfway through it before I had to start doing stuff for this. Um, but uh, that Cuties movie that you guys are going to talk about. Woo! Yeah. Yikes. Yeah, yikes. That uh, that gave, that gives me the same. When I, think, when I hear Billie Eilish, I'm like, this girl is really young. I should not be listening to someone this young say these things. <laughs> <laughs> Felt like I need to take a shower. Yeah, I feel like I need to take a shit when I listen to Billie Eilish. So we have similar. Yeah, something covered. Two of the three S's covered there. I'm sorry. I know she's a child and I shouldn't be mercilessly crapping on her, but you're going to play in the public arena, kid. You got to learn. Well, maybe she'll be like Adele and just get better as she as she gets older. You know, Let's hope her, so. I'll yeah, give her give the her benefit chance, of the yeah. doubt. I really will. Give her a chance. Maybe next time she comes out with an album, we review it, and you cut a promo on her like we did uh, 1975. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see. If she's brave enough to come on this podcast and debate me on why she doesn't suck, then I'll change my mind. The, the, the irony is the debate will already have been won just by her showing up. Yeah, because I, I don't – yeah. I feel like she's got more fans than we do. I feel like the oh. court of public opinion is uh, going to be strongly against us on this one, but I'm willing – I'll die on that hill with you. Oh, I appreciate game. it. Yeah. Solidarity is what makes a podcast work. So. Yeah, I've got no, uh, I've got no real feelings either way. So you can go ahead and pull me on the on that other side. Um, now, with that said, I think we got to wrap this one up because I think we're yep. we're bumping up against our uh, what we probably consider our maximum time here. So um, once again, want to give a shout out to Chase. Um, thank you for the suggestion of uh, Creedence Clearwater Revival Green River. Uh, we went ahead and said stream it. Um, really appreciate you picking that album because I do love that album. Um, as well as the killers imploding the mirage as well uh, we said stream it as well Um, so for these two albums i think they were good definitely better than 1975 last week Um, so we'll add these to the docket of ones that we would recommend for you Um, we're going to be coming up with we'd like to get more audience suggestions Um, i really felt like that was good because you know i don't i feel like obviously these are things that we're deciding to do on this podcast and everything but 
Um, sometimes it's tough to, I feel like I might be getting a little pigeonholed in certain genres and things like that with the things I might pick for this. So it's nice to have that audience input to tell us, you know, maybe break us out of that a little bit. So Chase, I appreciate you. Um, if you got other, um, I'll go ahead and plug Chase as well. Great musician himself. Um, so if you want Chase, uh, whatever band you're involved in right now, I know you were with the Nomads. I don't know if they're existent anymore, uh, but whatever band you're with right now, if you want to get a shout out or something, you just let us know. We'll, we'll go ahead and promote you as well. Um, so like I said, yeah, appreciate that. Appreciate anybody that's listened this far. Um, Alex, what do you got? I don't have much else. Um, I was debating whether or not to spring an album pick at the end of this, but I have a decision to make. So I guess it remains a surprise. All right. Well, we will certainly blast those out. Um, whatever we pick, you know, at the usual time, we'll put those out on the Friday before, um, before the pod comes out, you know, as usual, uh, follow us on Instagram at out on that line, follow us on Twitter out on that line one. Um, you can find our personal socials from there as well. If you want to follow either of us, um, I think we are going to put together a playlist under my Spotify account, um, of some of our favorite songs from the albums that we've done so far. Um, so probably just pick like two or three songs from each of those. Um, and we can, uh, you can feel free to listen to those, um, as well as, you know, listen to the albums before we do the show. Um, that way, when we talk about these things, you'll have an idea of where we're coming from with this stuff. Um, and we really would like to hear more from you. Um, we've had a really good response so far. We're pretty encouraged by, you know, by what we're doing. And, and I feel like we both think this is, you know, has some potential to really go somewhere. Um, but we really want everybody to come along with us with this one. For sure. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. So uh, we want to hear from you. We love you. Yes. Beautiful. Yes, we love you all. Um, and until next time, this has been Out on That Line. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.